you don't mind, let's turn together in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We live in a world that is marked by abuse in one way or another. When I use that word abuse, it elicits different thoughts and emotions in each of our minds. For those of us who grow up in very safe families, where we had a dad and a mom who watched over us and protected us, and the rest of our family did the same. Our environment was safe. By and large, we were never verbally, physically, or otherwise abused. You may not initially resonate with that thought. Stick a pin there. I'm going to come back to those of us who fall into that category in just a moment. Others of you identify very deeply and tragically with that notion that we have entered into and live in a world that is marked by abuse. You perhaps quite literally were. And what makes abuse so much more tragic for those of you in this category is that so often it was dealt out by those who should have protected you the most, and it exacerbates the feelings and the notions that this world is just not a very safe place. But for all of us, whether we have experienced what might be classically described as abuse or not, we live in a world that is, is full of it. In large ways or small, this world is like a constant hurricane. Threatening our safety, threatening our, our feeling of security. We walk and move around in this world and there's this nagging notion that it shouldn't be this way. That people should not be marginalized and hurt. That people should never turn their backs on us or hurt us. That the anxieties and cares of this world, even those of us who grew up in the safest of nurturing environments, we know that, that often we move in and out of, like, like a cycle, moving in and out of struggles and pain and suffering. What does such a world leave us to do? According to the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Colossae many, many centuries ago, he also wrote to the church in Rome, where he clarifies for us that all of us, whether we grew up in the safest of environments or in the most perilous of environments, all of us in this life are groaning awaiting the day when Jesus will come and make all things new, as Mark prayed about earlier, where 
There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. Or those of us who have been jaded and have become cynical because of how broken and dark this world so often is that all of that will be removed. For those of us, however, that are experiencing the renewal of Jesus, where Paul, when he writes about the groaning of all peoples everywhere, says that we are awaiting the finality of our adoption. In that same passage, he says that we have been brought back into the family of God. We've been adopted into His family. He says that we are awaiting the finality of that adoption, the redemption of our bodies, when all will be made new and there will be no more jadedness, no more cynicism. For a lot of us who are a little bit older, we pass away or pass off, explain away our jadedness and cynicism by just saying, that's the way life is. But if we understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus that promises us eternal restoration where there'll be no more sorrow and no more abuse, high level or low level, we can have confidence in this life, that we need not lead lives of despair. We need not be marked by crusty jadedness and cynicism, but we can live with hope. And such people who understand that the restoration of Jesus is not just in the future, but has begun in the here and now, Such people have something to say. Because the world all around us that is suffering such abuse, high level or low level, capital A or lowercase a abuse, they lead lives of just basic survival. But they have that nagging notion as well that it could be different. It should be different. The world wasn't made to be this way. And we who have been made new in Christ, we who are being made new in Christ, for it is a progressive, ongoing experience, we have something to say to them. That Jesus is their only hope. He is the only one who can grant them hope in the midst of the darkness and the jadedness and the cynicism. And Paul writes to us here in his letter to the Colossian church, And makes it clear that we are being renewed that we might give love and give thanks. So if you don't mind, let's read together verses 12 through 17. This is God's holy word. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. And the verses prior to this, Paul tells these Colossian believers that they have put on the new self, verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. How can anyone love deeply, giving of themselves sacrificially, and not stay in jaded, self-protective survival mode? How can anybody live like that? How can anybody lead a life of thankfulness in such a broken world? How? Because Christ has invaded this broken world. We're getting ready to celebrate this in what we call Advent. If you don't know what that word means, it just means coming. Jesus came to this earth, His first Advent. There's a second one coming where He'll come and finish His rescue mission. But He came, was born as a real human, fully God and fully man, to bring light into the darkness, healing into the brokenness, restoration to those who are far from God. And for those of us who place our faith in Him, He who died in our place and was raised from the grave, victorious over sin and death, that is the good news. Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected. If we place our faith in Him alone, we can undergo what Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 10, progressive renewal. And what should that result in? It should result in a renewal to love and a renewal to give thanks. How God intended this world to be. And despite the fact that it fell into sin quite willingly, and despite the fact that all of us, all of us, sin repeatedly over and over and over again, He intended from the very beginning to send His Son to bring renewal, to highlight His grace. And then now He is transforming us, which is what we will talk about today in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. In this letter, Paul is calling the Colossian believers to hold fast to Christ. This was a relatively new church that was indirectly planted by Paul, followers of Paul. And this church was being threatened. They were people who had come into their midst and were telling them that, yes, you need Jesus to find favor with God, to to be saved, to find total restoration, but you need to add to that your, your own good deeds, following after the law. Paul and the rest of the apostles taught repeatedly that the only way that we can be justified, acquitted, declared not guilty, is if we place our faith in Jesus alone. This is the only way whereby a rebellious sinner may be made right with God. This is why Jesus died. 
Jesus died to be our substitute, to take our penalty that we justly deserve. And if we trust him, a transaction happens. Our sin is transferred to him. That's why he died on the cross, not for his own sins, not because he needed to be punished, but because we deserved it. He takes our sin, but the other half of the transaction, just as inequitable, because Jesus did not deserve such punishment, we get his righteousness. The gospel ultimately is not about fairness. The gospel is the most inequitable story that was ever told. That the holy God of the universe took our sin and offers us his righteousness, that has nothing to do with fairness. Paul says back in chapter 2, verse 12, those of us who have trusted Christ have been buried with him in baptism. We've died to the old way. And now we've been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What happens to those who trust Jesus? Their sins are removed and the ledger of debt against us is soaked in his blood and nothing can threaten us anymore. But the truth of the matter is, this world feels very threatening, doesn't it? And so we have to ask ourselves the question, those of us who have been renewed in Christ or who are being renewed in Christ, how do we live in such a broken world and love in a way that, that, that tells the world around us that Jesus really is their only hope? How do we lead lives of thankfulness in such a way that, that the jaded, cynical people that surround us can say, Jesus really is the one who alone can renew. Well, first of all today, for those who are being renewed in Christ, these, this is us, all of us who have trusted Christ exclusively for our salvation. And those being renewed in Christ, we must pursue gracious, intentional love. This is what verses 12 through 14 of Colossians chapter 3 proclaims to us. Paul has established in the first couple of chapters of this letter that Jesus and Jesus alone is the renewer. You don't need to add anything to that. If you try to add anything to that, you lose Jesus. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus alone can save us. Jesus alone can renew us. And then when he renews us, what does that look like? How will we therefore live? Well, notice in verse 12 the descriptions of these new people. They're chosen. God made them His own by His grace. No one comes into the family by accident. This gives us great confidence. They're holy. This means they are distinct and, and set apart. They're not who they used to be. This doesn't mean that we don't still do wrong things, because we all do, all of the time. But progressively over time, we are being renewed, as Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 10. 
And the third thing that he says about us is that we are beloved. One of the great tragedies of most of Christianity is that we sing songs from from when we were little kids, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's like ingrained in us when we're young. It's catechetical. It's, It's like teaching. But once you grow up a bit and you suffer high level or low level abuse, you do question that. Once you grow up a bit and you've faced enough disappointment in life, whether high level or, again, low level, you do wonder. You could pass the quiz, the basic Christianity quiz, does God love me, check the box, yes, but I'm not sure most of us actually really believe it. What Paul says to these Colossian believers is that they need to hang on to Jesus and Jesus alone And in doing so, they will know that that they belong to God and they are beloved. So, I say to you today, before we go on and talk about how we should live, I say to you today, if if you are in Christ and trusting Him alone, this is how He looks at you. Despite your selfishness, despite your anxiety, despite your pride, despite your lust, Despite your pedigree, despite all of your regrets, if you are in Christ, you are beloved. And your dear Father sings over you with joy. But for those of us who are chosen, holy, and beloved, how should we live? Well, Paul says that we must put on compassion. Isn't this how God loved us? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. What did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. He came to us in Christ. What is Advent, which we again are soon to celebrate, if it is not a constant reminder of the compassion of God to come and seek and save that which was lost? So Paul says, because basically God is compassionate toward us, how should we live? Implication, we should be likewise compassionate. Not just willing to love those who are easy to love, but willing to love those who are very difficult to love. And if we're being honest, all of us are hard to love. And if you just said inside your brain, because you know you're not supposed to say it out loud, well, I'm not hard to love, Um, You are wrong. All of us are. And the love of God is highlighted because He's loved incredibly difficult people who weren't like Him. And my friends, the distance between us and God is inestimable in comparison to the distance between any of us here today. Realize that, right? And we don't treat each other with compassion even those of us who are far different from one another, we lose sight of the fact of what He's done for us in Christ. And we add to the gospel. If I treat you as though you must earn my love, I'm adding to the gospel, which is very antithetical to what Paul is saying here to the Colossian believers. They were being threatened by by false teachers saying, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to perform to stay in God's love. Paul is saying, no, 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 you need Jesus and Jesus alone. But when we make it difficult 
for people to be in relationship with us, when we don't demonstrate sacrificial compassion, we're adding to the gospel because we're saying to people, you must earn my love. So Paul is calling them not just to sort of general affection, camaraderie. He's calling them to to radical community change. If this Colossian church was going to withstand the false teaching around them and to find hope in a broken world, it was to be a haven of compassion. This means that this church family should be marked by sacrificial, patient compassion. What else? We should be kind. Kindness is severely undersold in this world. We are so jaded and broken by the storms that have beaten us that we lose kindness. We are not postured toward it. I have mentioned this before, but you can test this out when you go into public places. Go to a restaurant soon or perhaps to the mall during this shopping season, and everyone that you see Try to make eye contact with them and smile at them. Now, the Midwest is a relatively friendly place, right? I lived in the South for about 10 years. The South is a friendly place, although it doesn't always feel super genuine, those of you who've lived in the South a long time. Maybe up in the Northeast, nobody smiles. Like, you can ride a a subway in a large city with thousands of other people, and nobody will even look at you because they're just staring at their phone with their earbuds in. The Midwest is kind of a friendly place. We're relatively honest, but... But I think there's still a veneer to a lot of that. Go to the mall, go to a public place, and just smile at people and see what it does to them. Most people are frowning, or at least look relatively complacent. But it's interesting when you smile at people, even those you don't know, what it does to them. There's something in them that that is drawn to that, magnetized to that, because they don't believe the world is very kind. It's an interesting experiment. Parents, do this with your kids. How, how often when our kids think of our facial expressions, our body language, do they, do they see disappointment and frustration and weariness? You know how powerful it is to basically be postured toward our children with smiles of kindness? Paul is saying to these Colossian believers who are living in a hostile land, the city was not marked by holiness, the city was marked by, by unholiness. They would have often been threatened for their faith. But when they came together as the people of God, it should have been a community of kindness. What else? Humility. Humility. You'll you'll know a truly humble person, as has been said by a writer from some time back. You'll know a truly humble person, not because they speak poorly of themselves, but because they don't talk about themselves at all. Let me up the ante just a little bit. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors in New York City, said, you'll know a truly humble person, not necessarily because they're supremely interested in in ignoring themselves, but because they'll be supremely interested in you. It's interesting, isn't it? A lot of us try to pass off humility by, by humble bragging or speaking poorly of ourselves to elicit a response from another person. We do this all the time, right? Oh, I'm not very good at this, and we're hoping that the other person will say, no, of course you are. Or I'm not attractive, and the other person will say to us, of course you're attractive. We do this all the time. But that's just pride masked with other clothes. Truly humble people 
ultimately, if Keller is right, and I think he is, you'll know them because whenever you're around them, they're not even focused on themselves at all. They're supremely interested in you. What if a church, let's speak hypothetically, what if a church lived that way? As we are considering this merging together of our two congregations, I am telling you that the hard work is probably ahead. We've had to put a lot of hard work into writing bylaws and working on budgets and figuring out who we're going to be as a combined congregation, but, but the real work of putting together people in relationships, that's ahead of us. If that's going to work, we must all pursue the kind of humility that demonstrates supreme interest in each other. Paul says that these Colossian believers are being renewed to be meek. This is sort of like humility, but it's the idea of, of, being, of being lowly, of being willing to, to suffer abuse at times from each other, being, being willing to be defrauded and not lashing out in return. We don't have bloodlust. It's not an eye for an eye. How is this so? Well, the gospel is as I've already said, the most inequitable story that was ever told. Jesus did not deserve to take our punishment. We don't deserve His righteousness. Jesus was the most meek person that ever lived, which is ironic because He's the strongest person that ever lived. He says on the cross that He could have called 10,000 angels to release Him from His bonds, and He could have wiped out His oppressors. But in meekness, He took our punishment because He loves us, and He calls us to do the same. Guess what? As we learn to live together in harmony, we will not always treat each other kindly. And sometimes we won't even know it. Meek people are willing to, to suffer defrauding from another and not lash out in return. There's no way you can be in relationship, long-term, healthy relationship, if you don't pursue meekness. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 12 that we are to be patient. Again, I return to you as parents, and you're already chuckling, sort of like uncomfortably because you don't know what I'm going to say. When you have little kids, patience is supremely tested, isn't it? You do not know how selfish you are until you have little kids. And then all this ugly stuff inside of you that's been masked for years comes out, and sometimes you can't even believe it. It's true in churches too, isn't it? We have this, this thought that, that runs through our minds very naturally. Why can't this person just get it together? Right? Why can't this person see things the way I see them? Why can't this person understand how much I need this thing? Why, why is this person this way? Aren't you thankful God isn't like that? Because if He was, we would be lost. He is infinitely patient, and we are called to be patient as well. Paul goes on in verse 13 to say that we are to bear with one another. That's very timely for us, right? To bear with one another. This means not to walk away from each other. I challenge you as we are considering coming together as one congregation Let's love each other and let's stick together. Let's bear with each other through differences. Let's bear with each other through irritation. 
and aren't you thankful that God bears with you? I mean, it's not as though you come to Christ in faith and, and then God puts you on the clock. It's not as though there's scales out there where he says, okay, I've given you Jesus, I've given you the promise of eternal life, now live up to it and we'll see how you do. And if you don't, I'll cold shoulder you. We project our own passive aggressiveness back on God, and then we lose confidence in the fact that He loves us deeply and unfailingly. But it should be the opposite. Considering the fact that God does love us unfailingly, we should not be passive aggressive with each other. We should treat each other this way. We, we should never walk away from each other. We should bear with one another. And then notice how he goes on. He, he doesn't let them off the hook. I'm not going to let you off the hook. He says if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Not harboring bitterness. Not keeping a record of debt against each other. Classically, we do this in our marriages, right? We know it's no good. We know it'll never lead to any sort of constructive situation in our marriage. But when we get really mad and our filter gets turned off, how often in our marriages have we said, you did this, and you did this, and you always do this, and you never listen to me, and you're just like your parents, your mom, or your dad. We do this all the time. We, we keep a record of debt. But as we already saw in chapter 2, in verse 14, our record of debt has been canceled. So we should forgive each other in every situation. What if this community that we are seeking to form lived like the last phrase in verse 13? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What if we knew that was the case? What if we entered into a combined congregation knowing that even when we really messed it up, that the person that we offended would not just be willing to forgive us, but be eager to forgive us? This is what Paul and others say about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, whoever that was in Hebrews chapter 12, tells us that Jesus looked at the cross with joy. That makes no sense. Except for the fact that Jesus was postured toward, eager to dispense his compassionate love on lost, rebellious humans. This means that in some sense, we must get to the point that we test our hold on the gospel by how eager we are to forgive. And again, not just being willing to forgive, but being eager to forgive. Being, being eager to release a person from their debt. Do you live like that? When somebody comes to you and asks forgiveness, do you say to them, well, I probably will, but it's, it's going to take me some time to get over this. You ever used a phrase like that before? Or you say something like, you know, I'll always forgive, but I'll never forget. Paul calls these Colossian believers to be different in the midst of their circumstances. These opponents that were coming into them saying, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need a bunch of law. They had no conception of what grace really was. How were they going to learn what real grace was? By looking at these human mirrors who were reflecting the grace of God. My friends, people all around us in our communities, Lewis Center, Powell, Delaware, Marion, 
Prospect, Westerville, Worthington, and all the ones I just missed. They don't know. They have this, this nagging compulsion that, that something isn't right here, and they're looking for, for real love, but they don't know what it looks like. We are to be mirrors of the one who has rescued us and is renewing us and showing them what the world should be like. Paul caps this off in verse 14 by saying, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's like the glue that holds the world together. This is why the Scriptures say that God is love. Back in chapter 1, Pastor Rick read these verses earlier in our last song. Scriptures make clear that through Christ, everything was made that is made, and all things hold together in Him. And my friends, He holds it together with His compassionate love. He holds you together with His compassionate love. Now, quite literally, the atoms of your body don't spin apart because He's holding you together. And your story, lowercase t or capital case T, tragic, whatever it has been, Jesus is holding your story together. He's holding you together today in love. How will this community exist together if the glue that holds us together is patterned after that kind of love? Not circumstantial love, not retributional love, not transactional love, not temporary love, not not jaded cynical love but unreservedly giving ourselves out to each other, like Jesus did. There were no conditions on Christ's love, and there should not be conditions on the way that we love. As those being renewed in Christ, we must pursue gracious, intentional love. In Romans chapter 13, the apostle tells the Roman church, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Those of us who have trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for our eternal hope are now freed to love. But Paul goes on to say that as those being renewed in Christ, we are not only to pursue gracious, intentional love, we must foster an atmosphere of thankfulness and unity. So in verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, as these two churches with different histories different demographics to a degree, different convictions to a degree, different stories, we are considering becoming one body for the sake of each of us growing in our faith and our love for God, for the sake of reaching this community better together than apart. If we're going to do so, We want this new community to be marked by the peace of Christ. It is to to rule in us. We do not want to come together as one body if we're going to fight, be marked by, by being two separate entities. We are going to have to integrate. 
which is what verses 12 through 14 are helping us with, to, to learn how to love actually, tangibly, specifically, deliberately. But the atmosphere of, of this new body that we are considering must be the one of peace. The peace of Christ should rule in this one new body. Paul says in verse 15 that we were called to such peace. We were not called to live in divisiveness. If we live divisively, if our relationships are, are primarily marked by divisiveness and, and being sectarian, we have not really understood the gospel. But if we understand that God has made peace with us through Christ, we are to live in peace with each other as an implication. Notice at the end of verse 15, he says, and we are to be thankful. He's saying something more than just be spontaneously thankful. Sometime during 2018, we were probably spontaneously thankful. But how many of us practice thankfulness on a regular basis. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, you'd like to trace this with me, I invite you to. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that when he prays about these Colossian believers, he thanks God for them. In chapter 1, verse 12, he encourages them to give thanks. In chapter 2, verse 7, he tells them to abound in thanksgiving. Here in chapter 3, verse 15, he calls them to be thankful. He says in verse 16 that they are to practice thankfulness. He says in verse 17 that they are to give thanks. And in chapter 4, verse 2, they are to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In four chapters, Paul again and again and again tells these Colossian believers to be thankful thankful. That's interesting, isn't it? We tell our kids all the time to be obedient. That's a command. That's an imperative. But we, we think Thanksgiving is something that should just sort of spontaneously come from us. And that there are some among us who are just naturally thankful, others among us who are wise. And, and by implication, if you miss that, Parenthetically, a lot of times we say, well, people who aren't spontaneously, naturally thankful, they just understand that the world is such a messed up, broken place, and, and, and it's okay for them to be cynical and jaded. Wrong. This is why Paul is so deliberate about telling these Colossian believers to be thankful. Why does he put such emphasis upon this? If they lose their understanding of who they are in Christ that He is their only hope, that, that the good news of salvation, Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, resurrected, trusting Him, that's the gospel, period. If they're going to hang on to that and not turn to other things, they must practice thanksgiving. Because if they don't, they will become dissatisfied and they will look for other messiahs. Idolatry, worshiping things other than God, and by the way, that's not just an ancient problem, it's a modern problem. All of us are always worshiping something. But when we lose thanksgiving, we begin to look for other things to satisfy us because we're dissatisfied with God. And inevitably, we turn to other messiahs, other saviors, other idols to give us salvation, satisfaction, joy, rest. Rest. 
And we are very, very open to danger when that happens. How do you guard against that? How do you hold fast to Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? One of the best ways to do this is to practice thanksgiving. How do you start practicing thanksgiving? One of the first things that we probably have to do is repent. Repent that we aren't thankful. And after repent, after we repent, maybe we should record. Write down the things that God has done for us. My wife has done this for Thanksgiving. Pinterest is the bane of my existence now as a husband and father. It gets me into all kinds of very disconcerting house projects, but occasionally some good things come out of it. And for this Thanksgiving, my wife made a thankful tree, which is basically a big vase with some colorful pebbles in it and some twigs. And then she bought some fake, you know, autumn foliage and put it on the twigs and then made a bunch of little tags with hole punches in them that will stick on the twigs. And so my children and I are supposed to write down what we're thankful for and put it on the thankful tree. There are some good things, like we're thankful for my mom and dad. We're thankful for our house. We're thankful for God. Um, somebody wrote on one of the little tags, I'm thankful for smoked meats. Um, my, my oldest smart aleck son said that he's thankful for the thankful tree. My wife just shakes her head. But we're, we're trying to instill in our children a deliberate practice of thanksgiving so that they don't complain, so they don't look for false messiahs. When they find satisfaction in who God is and what he's done for them, they'll trust him and him alone. If this congregation that we are seeking to put together is going to make it, if we're going to to be characterized by the peace of Christ ruling in us, we must practice thanksgiving. One of the best ways to do this is in verse 16. The word of Christ should dwell in us richly, not just here on Sunday, but all the time. We should meditate on these truths. We teach each other, admonish one another, and, and then we sing together. One of the reasons we sing together is to give thanks back to God, and we do it together. Truly thankful people have to have a posture of recognizing that they are needy, that they are debtors to mercy. You may say to yourself, I don't like to sing out loud, it's embarrassing. I don't like to sing songs that I don't know. The problem is you haven't gotten over yourself. Forgive me for saying You don't realize that you're a debtor to mercy. And God has made you new. And according to the Psalms, has put a new song in your mouth to remind you of who you used to be and who you now are. And when you recognize that, who you were and who you now are, you were a rebel, now you're a dear son or daughter. You were far from God and lost, and now he's brought you home. You were alone in this broken, abusive world, and now he protects you, and no one can pluck you from his hand. Then you can sing together. Then you've got something to say. We express thanks together as one redeemed body when we sing together corporately. And lastly, in verse 17, whatever you do, whatever you do, should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What do you have, according to the Apostle Paul, that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. You were bought with a price, according to Paul also in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, you should 
glorify God in your body. We must foster an atmosphere of thankfulness and unity. One of the most practical ways to do this is to actually say it out loud. So I've already said, if you have to work on being thankful, and all of us do, first of all, repent. Secondly, record. Write things down specifically. Try to be as specific as you can. And then go tell people. I'm thankful to God for what he has done for me. Or, I'm thankful to God because he's given me you, and this is what I see in you, and I'm so thankful for it. You say, well, that's awkward. I'm not good at that. And I say to you again with a smile, get over yourselves. If the Bible is anything, it's a record of God's lack of embarrassment in telling us how much he loves us. Get that? Let me say that again in case you missed it. The Bible is nothing if it is not a record of God being unembarrassed and telling us how much he loves us. So we should live that way as well. We won't take time to turn back here, but Jason read to us a bit ago from Psalm 100. I commend this to your attention this week. You may use this in your Thanksgiving meal before you actually partake of the luscious turkey and the stuffing and all the other family traditions you have. Maybe read some scripture together. Practice Thanksgiving together as a family. Ray Ortland, one of my favorite pastors, says this. The fact that God gave us the Bible tells us he wants us to grow as good thinkers, think bravely for ourselves, learn humbly from one another, and keep growing over our whole lifetime. This reminds us of what Paul says here in Colossians 3.16, that the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, transforming us and turning us into thankful, loving people. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the apostle says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul was thankful for the people that he shepherded, and he called them to be thankful in return. And so I say to you, as those being renewed in Christ, we must pursue gracious, intentional love and we must foster an atmosphere of thankfulness and unity. This is very applicable for this time of year as we celebrate together as a nation this holiday of Thanksgiving. It is incredibly applicable for us as God's people as we learn to live together in love and thankful unity. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now we pray that you would take these words and plant them deep in our minds and hearts. May you transform us for the glory of Jesus and for our mutual joy and for the good of this community. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.